Well, as most of you know, we just celebrated our first year of ministry here at Fellowship Baptist Church, and if I'm lying, I'm dying. There's nowhere in the world we'd rather be than liberal Kansas Fellowship Baptist Church. Um, serious, and I'm not joking, this year has flown by, just absolutely flown by. Um, man, so, honestly, some days I have to pinch myself to make sure I'm not, like, asleep. I'm, it's not a dream. I'm not still, you know, stuck in a tundra somewhere. I, I'm serious about that. You say, Brother Tanner, what's so great about liberal Kansas? Well, the weather, of course. It's got to be the weather. No one told me when I was moving to liberal Kansas that I was going to be moving into a weather climate that has a personality disorder called bipolarism. Um, Just the other day, my mom was in town, and she was staying with us, and it began to rain, and, and which is rare here, isn't it? It began to rain, and And my mom opens the door to smell the rain, and she said, ooh, that's hot rain. I said, hot rain? So I stepped outside and got a whiff of this hot rain that my mom was hyping up, and mom, that's not hot rain, that's that's national beef getting rained on right there. (laughs) She thought she was smelling some hot rain. Um, Seriously, though, what, what makes Liberal such a great place is this church. This is the first time, probably in my church life ever, that I've actually felt like the people that I go to church with are actually friends and family and not just people I go to church with. Just the other day, we were at a church member's house, and we were standing around uh, the bed of a truck, and I was talking to two other uh, male church members. And it's just like, man, these these guys are my friends. These are my family. It's not just some random people that I attend worship services with and and then move on. So church, I love you, and we're just so thankful that we get to serve alongside you here at Fellowship Baptist Church. Well, the first sermon that I uh, preached in the book of James, it was made clear that we're going to go through trials in this life, all kinds of different trials. But what do you do in those trials, those outer trials, when inner temptations of sin arise? Do you get that? What do you do when you have an outer trial... Something that you didn't ask for, something that you never planned on, something that you didn't wish for, it's it's coming on your life, and now all of a sudden, you have inner temptation to sin. What do you do when that happens? I mean, isn't it enough that we have to deal with the trial itself, much less a temptation to sin? I mean, isn't it difficult enough just to live a pure and holy life? and sanctified life without a trial being on top of that? So my question tonight is, when you're in the midst of a trial, whatever that may be, how do you guard yourself against the temptation to sin? That's the question I want to answer this evening. So go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of James, chapter 1. James chapter 1, it sounds like most of you are there. The big idea of James 1 is that God is going to allow you to go through some trials. And it's not just to punish you. It's, it's not to make you feel bad about yourself or make you uh, feel miserable. But there's actually a purpose to the trials that God's going to allow in your life. And the purpose is a mature, a more complete, a more joy-filled, blessed Christian life. He says that in chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. He says, I want you to be joyful in your trials because... 
at the end of your trial, when your patience is tested, when your faith is tried, God is going to make you a better Christian. And then he says in verses 5 through 8, he says this, if you don't understand what to do in the trial, or how to navigate in the trial, ask for wisdom, and God will give you wisdom. He says, but don't be double-minded. Don't doubt. Don't, don't think that God isn't doing something here. Don't doubt God's good intentions for your life in this trial. And then in verses 9 through 11, he gives some examples of what those trials might be. Remember, James is writing to what I believe is his former church. He's writing to scattered brethren, scattered Christians who have been pushed out of their homeland and into a Gentile territory. you got to know these people have been uprooted from their livelihoods. They've got new homes. They've got new jobs. They've, there's new startup businesses. The kids have to make new friends. And so these Jewish Christians are being persecuted by Gentiles because they're Jews, and they're being persecuted by Jews because they're Christians. They can't win. So he gives them in 9 through 11 a couple of examples of the trials they might have been going through, which would have been prolonged poverty and loss of wealth. And he says, even if you have to go through poverty for a long, extended period of time, or, or even if you lose your riches, you can still rejoice, knowing that these earthly circumstances won't be forever. And then he ties it all up in verse 12 by saying, hey, blessed are those who endure trials. They're going to receive a crown of life. At the end of a trial, they're going to have a deeper, more meaningful, more mature, joy-filled Christian life. That leads us to verse number 13. Tonight, we're going to see how we can be tempted in sin in the midst of our trials through the verses 13 through 15. And then we're going to see four ways to keep yourself from sinning whenever you're in the midst of a trial in verses 16 through 21. Are you ready to dive in? Let's look at verse 13. Verse 13 reads, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. When you're tempted to sin during a trial... Know that the temptation comes from within and not from God. When you're tempted to sin, know that it's not coming from God. It is coming from something within you. James starts off by saying, hey, don't blame God for your current temptation. God himself is never tempted with evil. Why would he tempt someone else with evil? God himself is never enticed with evil. Why would he entice other people with evil? That's just simply not God's nature. It's not his character. The temptation that you're feeling rising up inside of you, whenever you're in the midst of a trial, hey, you've got to know that's not coming from God. That's coming from right within inside of you. It says that when a man is tempted, he's drawn away. He's drawn away. It's like... When you're in the midst of a trial and the, the temptation to sin rises up, it gets so strong that it's like a fish hook. Now, I don't know much about fishing. If I catch a fish, I probably won't uh, touch it to take it off. I just, I, I don't do that. But it's like a fish hook. Being drawn away is, is what he says in verse 3. It's like a fish hook that's uh, planted in your mouth and just leads you away. And then it says this temptation, it's going to entice you. It's going to look really good to you. It's going to look like, man, I, I need a break from this this trial, 
And this temptation looks really good. I might as well give in to it. It's enticing. It's like a mouse who sees a, a little bite of peanut butter on the ground. But what that mouse doesn't know is that peanut butter is actually resting on a trap. It's going to snatch him up as soon as he takes a bite of that peanut butter. That's what temptation is being presented as here. It's enticing us. It's luring us in. What does this temptation look like in real life? How does it show up in our everyday world? Well, I'm going to bring up three scenarios, three different scenarios. There's obviously hundreds we could go through, right, in sin with, during uh, trials in your life. There's obviously hundreds. I'm going to bring up three scenarios on how this could possibly come up in somebody's life. Maybe it's that your career is plateaued. You aren't happy with where your career is heading. You want more recognition. You want more money. You want to be a, a bigger decision maker. You want to have more power within your, your current industry. And you have no idea why your career has plateaued. You see everybody else excelling. You see everybody else doing well. You show up early. You stay late. You, you work hard. So why in the world is my uh, career plateauing right here? And so this, this temptation starts to well up. You're in a trial because... You don't understand why you're so unhappy at your job and, and no one's recognizing your job. So this, this temptation wells up to get impatient. This temptation wells up to have a lack of trust in God that, that he knows what he's doing in your life and with your career. That's one scenario. Another scenario would be a stay-at-home mom. A stay-at-home mom, she, uh, she feels overloaded and underappreciated. She doesn't feel as though she gets the credit that she deserves. No one thanks her for all the work that she does around the house. I mean, with several kids and teenagers and dirty diapers and then laundry and dishes, I mean, it piles up. And so a stay-at-home mom might begin to feel a little bit underappreciated. And she might have a, a bit of a selfish desire rise up in her because she's not getting the recognition that she thinks she deserves. And I'm all for recognition of stay-at-home moms. I'm married to one. And I love her, and she works hard, and she does a great job, and, and I probably don't think you're enough. So I can see how a stay-at-home mom would have the, the temptation to well up and say, you know what, they don't really care about me here. I am so underappreciated for all that I do. A single person could think, you know what, I am sick and tired of being single. I, I know God wants me to marry, but I just haven't met the right one yet. I'm the only one in my circle of friends that hasn't experienced a sexual relationship with uh, someone of the opposite sex yet. I'm tired of waiting for God to move. So a desire within begins to well up that says, I'm going to make my own moves, and I'm going to uh, use my own hand here to make something happen in this regard. But the problem with all of those three scenarios is this. Evil desires, if not caught and dealt with, they don't just start, stop with evil desires, do they? An untamed lust becomes sin. And then sin that isn't dealt with grows and takes over your life. What does that look like? Let's go back to our scenarios. The person that is, uh, isn't happy with where their career is at. They've plateaued. This desire to have more in the company, and to be more in the company, make bigger decisions in the company... That desire then turns into manipulating situations, manipulating people, stabbing coworkers in the back, 
talking bad about co-workers behind their back, throwing people all uh, under the bus, all in the name of you climbing the ranks of the company. That's how that desire would become sin. The stay-at-home mom. Man, she's fed up. There's always piled up dishes. No one lends a hand. What in the world does she do? So you know what she begins to do? She begins to speak her mind. She begins to tell her kids how she feels. She begins to tell her husband how she feels. She begins to have angry, outrageous, uh, loud explosions towards those who are in her home because she simply just doesn't care anymore. That desire to be appreciated, that, that desire to be noticed has now caused her to have angry outbursts all the time. The third uh, scenario is a, a single person on dates. They begin to ignore everything about the inner person and they only focus on how they can gratify themselves sexually. So this once desire that was not sin yet has now progressed along to becoming sin in their life and it's taking hold on their life. Sadly, it doesn't stop there. Once sin begins dominating your life, it brings forth death. It brings forth death. Not physical death. There's lots of Christians that are walking around with life-dominating sins, and they're not dead. So it's not a physical death, it's a spiritual death. It's a kind of shriveling up. It's a deadening of the inside. It's an it's a inner disgust and an inner uh, hate for your own self, even almost a depression, because you're so sick of the person that you've become. Starts with the desire. And then it goes to a sin. And then the sin begins to dominate your life. And then you find yourself disgusted at the person that you've become. How in the world do we keep that process from happening? We're in the midst of a trial. Life's already rough. Now I've got these temptations rising up inside of me. How in the world do we stop this process from happening? I want to give you four ways to fight temptation that comes at you during a trial. Number one, be convinced God has something good for you in mind during the trial. Look at verse 16. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Hey, hey, don't be deceived, my beloved brethren. Don't be deceived in your thinking. God wants to do something for you in this trial. Don't be deceived. Verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth that we should be the kind of first fruits of his creatures. You must be absolutely convinced. If you want to conquer sin during a trial, you must be absolutely convinced of what James said at the very beginning. God is going to do something for you, through you, to you during this trial. You've got to be convinced of that. Did you notice what he said about good and perfect gifts? How would you uh, pick a good and perfect gift? How, how would you choose a good and perfect gift? Well, you probably wouldn't choose something that's... Uh, cheap or worthless or, or meaningless to the person, you would choose something good. You would do the best you could for the person that you're giving the gift to if they mean a lot to you, right? But then there's, it says perfect. What does that mean? It means that it's personalized. It's specifically catered to that person. Now, I've dropped the ball several times when it comes to Taryn's birthday. I mean several times. I hit a home run with this last one. 
Amen? But several times I've absolutely dropped the ball. She's never dropped the ball. I'm pretty sure our first, my first birthday when we were married, she got me a pair of like $200 Kobe Bryant basketball shoes. It was awesome. But I dropped the ball. The summer before we got married, I got her, for her birthday, like a $30 pair of Reebok tennis shoes that no girl in her right mind would wear uh, while working out. And then, and then I got her some half-priced lotions from Bath and Body Works. <clears throat> not a good gift, not a perfect gift at all. Had I been thinking clearly, and had I had read James uh, 1.17 on, on God's rule for gift-giving... I would have gotten her something good and something that actually fit her, like a Target card with lots of money on it, or flowers, or Starbucks, or coffee, or something like that, because it would have been a good gift. It would have been fit for who she is. In the midst of a trial, God has something good and perfect planned for you. It's perfect to your situation, and it's good for where you are at. So, let's go back to our scenarios. If your career is plateaued and you aren't happy with your job anymore, maybe you've climbed the peak of where you're going to go in that corporation. It could be that God is going to give you an opening at another company and a better job. It could be that God is going to allow you to pursue one of your passions that you've never had time to pursue before. God's got a good and perfect gift for you. Hey, it could be for that stay-at-home mom that God's going to help her to develop a, a system, a more efficient system of running her household so that uh, she doesn't feel so overwhelmed all the time. Maybe one of the older kids is going to step up and, and begin to take care of things in the house or begin to take care of some of the younger kids in the house. Hey, maybe the husband's just going to say, Honey, we're going away on vacation, just you and me. And that's what, all she needs to be refreshed. Ladies, did you hear what I just said? Honey, I'm going to take you away, just me and you, on a vacation. Can I get an amen to that, ladies? Come on now, that's for you. You're supposed to amen there. For the single person. Maybe it's, that, maybe it's that God hasn't given them the spouse they want yet. Because maybe God wants them to be free in this season of life uh, to take care of an ailing parent. Or to put in more hours and pick up some slack at their job. Or, or maybe to uh, take on a new ministry that would be a little more difficult for a husband and wife to do. Hey, I'm telling you, God's got, God's got a perfect and good gift for every single person that is going through a trial. If you want to go through a trial and, with, and without sin, you have to be convinced God's got something good planned for you. Number two. <clears throat> resist impatience and resist becoming angry with God. Look at 19 and 20. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear... Slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Seek to understand the ways God may be trying to communicate with you. Don't get angry with God because that never accomplishes anything, does it? It says, for the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. God's wanting to work righteousness in you. And if, and if you're quick to speak and you're quick to complain and you're quick to give your mind on the matter, that's not working the righteousness of God. Rather, he says, seek to understand. Seek to understand. Be slow to speak. Close your mouth. Be slow to speak, but be quick to hear. Be quick to listen. Try to understand what it is that God might be. Did you notice the word wherefore? It says wherefore, my beloved brethren. 
So he's going back to the fact that God is an unchanging God, and God is a good father, and God is a God that wants to give good gifts. So he says, wherefore, because God is that God, and God wants to give you those gifts, be slow to speak. Be slow to speak. Hey, try to understand what exactly God might be doing for you. Look for how God might be blessing you. How does that happen? It happens by that man who's stuck in a, a career that he doesn't want to even be a part of anymore saying, Father, show me what to do with my career. Show me what you want done. Hey, Father, I trust my career to be in your hands. Father, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be patient. I'm, I'm going to listen. But I'm going to just wait for you to show me exactly what you want me to see. For the stay-at-home mom, Lord, teach me how to handle my schedule rather than being overwhelmed by it. Hey, seek, seek to understand how God might be using your crazy, diaper-filled life to work something good in you and teach you something through it. God, you, you know that I have a desire to be married and to love. Please show me what your plans may be for me. Hey, be quick to listen. Be slow to speak. Be slow to wrath. Because the anger of, of man, it, it doesn't work the righteousness of God. Number three, and we're moving. <clears throat> Identify the sin that is rising up inside of you and do away with it. Look at verse 21, the first part. Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness. After James told them to be quick to understand, be slow to speak, be slow to complain. Be slow to be angry. He then tells them to cast down whatever sin might be rising up. To lay apart there, it literally means to lay it down. To snatch it and pin it down. That's what that means. The word filthiness, it literally means moral dirtiness. And here's my favorite phrase in James, superfluity of naughtiness. I'm telling you, when James comes around, You've got to break out your 1828 Webster's Dictionary, amen, and understand what these words he's saying. But the phrase simply means an abundance of badness, an abundance of wickedness. So when you get to that point in your trial, and you feel your sinful desires begin to well up and pop up in your head, James is saying, identify them and literally pen them down and cast them away. How many times, how many times do we sin simply because we just let it happen? We just passively let it happen. We don't think twice about it. James is saying, no, think twice about it. Find out what desire is going on in your heart that is making you want to act this way. Grab it and push it to the ground. Do away with it. What does that look like in our scenarios? Father, I'm, I'm frustrated. I'm frustrated because my career isn't what I want it to be, and I'm impatient, and I lack trust in you. Father, I don't want to be like that. I don't want to be impatient. I don't want to like trusting you. God, help me to get over this. For the stay-at-home mom, Lord, the real reason I'm so angry is because I'm selfish. It's actually because I want people to think about me and do things my way. And every time they don't, I blow up. My sin comes from an inner selfish desire within me. And Father, I don't want to be that way. Find the desire, snatch it, and throw it down. For the single person, Father, pursuing a sexual relationship outside of marriage is really just to gratify myself 
without any care in the world about what it might actually be doing to myself or the other person involved. That's not right, God. That's not right. God, help me. Help me to get rid of this sin. You see, we cannot go about sin passively. We cannot go about sin flippantly. If we do, we'll end up in the spiritual death column. You've got to find that desire. You've got to snatch it and you've got to cast it away. Lastly this evening, number four, receive God's word. Look at the end of verse 21. It says, and receive with meekness the engrafted word, which is able to save your soul. Come back to God's word. Come back to God's word that's been faithful and reliable in doing something in your heart whenever you come to it. As you stay connected to God's word, it can carry you safely through any trial. Any trial. If you humbly and obediently accept the wisdom from God's word, it will guide you through whatever trial and whatever temptation might come your way. When it says the word has the ability to save your souls, it's not talking about eternal salvation. It's talking about having the ability to presently save you from sin and your temptation. That's the ability that it has. He's saying allow God's word to guide you so you can safely arrive at the, at the point in your life that God is trying to get you to. God's word is the vehicle to get us there. Let's go back to our scenarios one more time. To the man with the plateaued career. Accept the fact that God is in control of your career. According to his word, he has known since the time that you were in your mother's womb how your life is going to unfold. He knows everything about you. He knows where you're going to go. He knows where you're going to work. He knows exactly what you're going to do. And guess what? He knows exactly every good and perfect gift you need. Every single one. Bank on that promise. To the overwhelmed mother. And I know it can get frustrating because I'm someone that leaves dishes out and I'm someone that leaves clothes out. I know it can be frustrating. And I know you can feel overloaded at times and, and, and overwhelmed with the work and definitely underappreciated. But know this, when, when, when you got toddlers throwing uh, rocks at each other over here and you got diapers hanging off the fan over here and you're feeling overwhelmed and you're feeling like you want to just blow up, know this. God says there's no temptation that you can't get past. There's no temptation that you can't get through. There is nothing that, that any kind of temptation to sin is going to come into your life that God won't give you the power or the ability to get over. And for our last scenario tonight, single person, trust that God says that the marriage bed is undefiled. That a sexual relationship within marriage is pure and honored. But a sexual relationship outside of marriage is fornication and adultery and ultimately will lead to God's judgment in your life. Trust that God's word says that marriage is between one man and one woman for a lifetime. And trust that God, if you're truly called to marry and you're truly called to, to be in love and have a spouse, trust this, God knows exactly who that person is and God knows exactly when that person needs to enter into your life. God's word is the vehicle that can guide you through Temptation to sin during the midst of a trial. We're going to conclude tonight by going back over the four points. 
When you're going through a trial, number one, be convinced God has something good for you in mind during the trial. Be quick to look for what that may be. Um, number two, resist impatience. And resist becoming angry with God. Number three, identify your sin. Snatch it out of the air. Snatch it out of your heart, out of your mind, and do away with it. And number four, humbly receive God's word. That's it. Those are the four ways you can get through a trial and temptations that arise during a trial. Those four steps right there, right from, right from the book of Genesis. It's amazing, isn't it? I'm going to have uh, whoever's doing music come, and, and uh, I'll give you an opportunity to respond tonight. You know, it's been said a lot in the last few weeks. You're either in a trial or you're about to go into a trial. Isn't that right? You're either in one, coming out of one, or about to head right back into one. So I simply want to use the invita invitation tonight for this, for those who are in a trial, to, to come and commit to doing these four things in your trial to keep your life holy and pure during a trial. And for those of you who are not in a trial, as Pastor Prater preached last Sunday, uh, prepare for the trial now while it's sunny, rather than waiting for the dark clouds to loom over and then you make your decision to follow God. It's much easier to prepare now than it will be when it actually hits. 